Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the fallout from the Prime Minister's throne speech and then his nighttime address. Did we need to prorogue government for all of this? The Prime Minister now says he does not want an election. Well, then why would you prorogue government six weeks ago, knowing it could possibly trigger one? You can now book your COVID-19 test online within the city of Hamilton. We have the details. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. We were off yesterday because I broke my leg and had to go to the hospital. I checked over my mask. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, if you only know the whole story. He's hobbling out of here now. Thanks, Kurt. On his crutches. Uh, that's why we were off yesterday. Uh, poor Curtie, uh, took a, took a header and, uh, ended up breaking his leg. Swinging on a rope swing. That'll do it for you. Uh, anyway, he's fine. Don't worry. Uh, just, uh, six weeks on a cast or on crutches in a cast. I'm Scott Thompson. It is the Scott Thompson home show. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping us on the air as he has been for 28 weeks. Now feel free to jump into the conversation. You'll find the commentary waiting for you at 900CHML.com. Uh, in risk, in regard to, uh, the throne speech, same thing on Facebook and Twitter. Feel free. We would love to hear your thoughts and the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell. Uh, obviously yesterday, a throne speech from Prime Minister Trudeau and then, uh, an evening, uh, 6.30, an early evening, uh, a speech as well from, uh, to the nation from uh, all the various networks and such. Uh, here's Mercedes Stevenson from Global News talking to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, asking if he will trigger an election. I'm not looking for a way to tear down government. I want to continue to fight for people. That's what we've been doing as New Democrats from the beginning, helping to make sure that those uh, who are being forgotten about or left behind are not forgotten about and fighting for the people that need help. All right, let's bring in Karina Gould, Minister of International Development, MP for Burlington, and is with us now. Karina, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you, Scott. I hope you're doing well, too. Yeah, we're trying. Uh, throne speech yesterday and, and uh, certainly uh, a scaled-down version of what we would normally see in the pomp and circumstance and such. Uh, many are questioning whether this was even all worth it or not. Was prorogation a waste of time when this all started? We were sitting at uh, uh, just below 100 cases uh, in Ontario, and uh, it, things were looking pretty good. The uh, the Prime Minister said he was looking to build back better, to quote the Democrats' line, and and uh, build back a greener uh, Canada and such. And now, uh, other than an extension of some of the programs and such, we, we really didn't see any of that. So was this all premature? Well, look, I think it was important to recognize that, um, you know, in the past year, things have changed a lot, and our priorities have changed as well. And so the fact is that I think the speech from the moon was important because we've seen, um, you know, a huge, um, you know, spending to keep the economy and to keep Canadians afloat um, over the past six months. And I think, you know, bringing those priorities, um, bringing those objectives 
to Parliament and to Canadians in a few speech yesterday was still important because, you know, we've had to significantly change our social safety net um, over the past six months. We've had to significantly invest in healthcare and PPE um, and contact tracing. And we are still looking to make those really important investments to address some of the key challenges that the pandemic has brought upon us as Canadians, as individuals and as businesses and organizations. It just seems the Canadians have bigger fish to fry right now. And, and could this not all have been done in Parliament or at Rideau College? Uh, uh, at the end of the day, with six weeks of Parliament shut down and now we see a lack of testing, should this could this time have been better spent working on the on the pandemic? Well, the work on the pandemic never stopped. Uh, we have been fully engaged um, the entire time on that, um, you know, and working with our counterparts in the provinces and the territories. I mean, back in uh, late June, early July, we announced $19 billion for the Safe Restart Agreement with the provinces. So the provinces absolutely have the resources um, to, you know, ramp up testing and, and to you know, make the important changes that they, that they, in many cases, have made, um, but continued to continue to work on um, and so that that never stops Scott I mean we've, we've been working on that product non-stop um, since since the beginning but we did feel that it was important um, to bring this plan to Parliament and to Canadians because um, you know some of it builds on what we um, ran on uh, in the last election but obviously the pandemic has changed things and so whether it's the extension of the Canada emergency wage subsidy um, the really important uh supports to businesses, but also to individuals, and then also recognizing, you know, some of the big and glaring gaps that we've seen in our society over the past six months, I think particularly about long-term care um, and working with the provinces to develop national standards and, you know, um, amending the criminal code to make sure that we can hold those who are supposed to care for our elders to account. These are really important things that we felt it was important, um, you know, to, to bring to parliamentarians and to get a mandate to move forward on. So uh, as a result of all of this, we now find ourselves on the brink of an election. Do you think this is where Canadians want to be? I mean, it, it, it sounds to me like obviously uh, liberals are, as with any leader, many leaders who are showing strong numbers right now during a COVID crisis. We've seen people start to hold uh, snap elections to take advantage you know, of that sort of thing. That being said, uh, you know, here we are, Canadians find themselves on a brink uh, of an election. Do you think we want to be here? I mean, it, it just seems that there's uh, other things that have, uh, you know, Canadians tied up in knots than going through this. Well, I can say we don't want an election. Um, and the Prime Minister has been very clear about that. Um, but we also need to work with uh, opposition parties in a minority government. So whether it was a speech from the throne, a fall economic statement, or an upcoming budget, those are all moments um, that are confidence votes. And so, you know, we we need to work with the opposition to pass um, any legislation that we're bringing forward to Canadians. And I think this is an important moment for opposition parties to demonstrate uh, whether they're willing to work with us on behalf of Canadians or whether they want to um, to take us to the polls. But we certainly don't want an election. We recognize that Canadians don't either. But the Liberals have put the opposition in a position of an election by proroguing, proroguing, proroguing government. If, if the Prime Minister did not want to possibly trigger an election, why would he have prorogued government? I mean, again, a lot of this could have been done 
without going to this to this extent. It, it, many are just thinking this was all about covering up the Wee scandal and, and any of the committees that were going on. Well, no. So, I mean, the reason why we did this was because we find ourselves in a very different position than we did in October 2019. I mean, I don't think you can argue that things haven't changed drastically in the last 12 months. No, I think everybody would agree things have changed drastically. They just don't think the solution is an election. Well, but I think what, and and I think we agree with that. (laughs) We don't want an election either. But, you know, what we also. Then why pro road government? But we need the support of opposition parties to be able to work forward. And we need their commitment to roll out these important programs for Canadians. And I think, um, you know, it's, it is important for them to, you know, demonstrate whether they're going to be supportive or not uh, for Canadians during this critical time. And we are in a minority government, right? So whether it was a speech from the throne yesterday or whether it was a small economic statement in a month or whether it was, um, you know, a budget in February, those are all moments um, where we're going to need to have the support of the opposition. And if they don't provide it, would trigger um, an election. And I think, you know, Having the support of the opposition for the speech from the throne gives us runway to develop a budget to continue to work with them and work on behalf of Canadians. Because I don't think anyone wants an election right now, but we need to keep moving this forward and we need to keep being there for Canadians. What about those that say that no one wants an election, um, however, that perhaps due to their increased popularity through the pandemic, the prime minister wants an election now. He just doesn't want to be the bad guy who calls it. Well, I can say we don't want an election, but we are in a minority government. And so we need the support of the opposition to be able to move forward. And I think what we've seen, um, you know, in the first couple of months um, of the pandemic, we were working very well together. Um, But then as we were moving uh, later into the spring and certainly over the summer, I mean, the opposition, um, you know, was was definitely, um, you know, um, making noise about, um, you know, triggering an election or not supporting the government. And so, you know, we feel very strongly that now is not the time, but we also feel that we need to demonstrate to Canadians what their plans are uh, in order to move forward. And that is going to require the support of the opposition. And of course, if the opposition doesn't support it, then we need to go back to Canadians. But that's not what we're hoping for. We would rather all of us working together to keep delivering important programs like, you know, what, what was the Canada Emergency Response Benefit that's now changing to the Canada Response Benefit to Canadians, uh, you know, delivering programs like the Canada Emergency Business Account to Canadian businesses to help everyone get through this pandemic. But we can't do that alone. We have to have the support of the opposition. Karina Gould has been with us, Minister of International Development and MP for Burlington. Karina, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Same to you. Take care. Uh, Let's bring in Karen Vecchio, MP for Elgin Middlesex, London Deputy House Leader for the Official Opposition, and with us now. Karen, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks very much, Scott, and thanks for having me on the show. So your thoughts on what has transpired? I mean, nobody seems to want an election, yet we found ourselves in prorogation. Well, I just listened to your preamble, and, and honestly, that's exactly how I feel. You know, when he ta- when this prorogation happened, it happened the day before documents were going to be received by the Finance Committee on this on this scandal that has been on this government all summer long. And so the prorogation was that. And really, when they talked about we're coming out with a new, uh, new throne speech, we're going to be sending a new direction, and that's why they needed to prorogue. 
it actually, for some of us, caused a little bit of, oh, no, what are they coming out with? Because I was expecting some really uh, dramatic programs. But what I've heard is basically a reiteration of speeches from the thrones from 1993, from 2015, from 2019. And it's just, you know, people talk about it being a green, you know, it's all about the green in this environment. The only thing that's green about it, it's all recycled ideas. And so there's nothing new. So I question why they probed. And that's why did you probe if if we're just doing the same as what we were doing before? I don't understand. And at the same time, I think all he's doing is dangling the carrot to make all of the other opposition parties, specifically ours, try to look bad. That's not what's good for Canadians right now. Could all of this have been done without prorogation, without uh, a throne speech in the pomp and circumstance? Couldn't this all have been done in Parliament or outside of Rideau Col- uh, Cottage? Absolutely. Nothing in that throne speech is new. He's talking about bringing in some programs and, and carrying on these things. The National Housing Strategy, back in 2018, it was put out. They talked about childcare. It was both in their 2015 and 2019 platforms. Uh, they haven't done anything in five years. They haven't delivered. So really what they did was they were reiterating all of their campaign promises from years on things they haven't delivered, saying it's now time we're going to start delivering this during this time. Um, it's very concerning, you know, when he was talking about it, the extension of the Canadian emergency wage um, subsidy, something that I know is very important to Canadian businesses. I've spoken to many of them. Um, that could have been done very, very simply. Uh, we All of these things that he's talking about could have been done without prorogation, period. Um, what, what about the national address after the throne speech? I mean, that's very uncommon. You know, you give a throne speech, that's your speech. What do you have to go up and reiterate it for? <laughs> well, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to Michelle Rempel and you know how she would, she was saying, why are they doing this? And, and I was talking to her about that. And, and, you know, it was really, like I said, dangling a carrot. What it was, she was talking about national urgency. And, and, you know, I think I thought there was going to be something, you know, where are we going from there? All he did was give a similar public service announcement that we've heard for months and months and months that, yes, I continue to share with my own constituents, wash your hands, make sure you're cautious and and taking all of those precautions. But taking it at 6.30 during primetime news uh, so that all Canadians had to sign in, you know, I think what he did is the governor general delivered his speech. Then he got to deliver this speech. And then this uh, afternoon at at 12 o'clock, he got his chance to talk on this throne speech, and he was doing it for half an hour. He's now given the throne speech three times, and that's just unheard of. So here we are. We find ourselves at the brink of uh, of an election due to prorogation. Again, I find it hilarious that the liberals are saying we don't want an election, yet they're the ones <laughs> that, that have put us in this situation. Now that we are on the brink of an election, they're forcing it on you, you know, the opposition, whether it's conservatives, whether it's the bloc, whether it's the NDP, in order to trigger an election. My feeling is there's no one that wants an election more than Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He just doesn't want to be the bad guy who calls it. That's exactly the case. And, and I'm very fortunate because of, of dealing with House leadership. We, tie, we kind of look at things that are happening. So one of the biggest things that were happening is we are trying to get back to reconvening Parliament. That included question period. That included uh, debates. Uh, private members' bills, documents. And what they were trying to do was not get back to Parliament with the workings of committee. And so yesterday when it was announced that committees would be starting on October 7th, I can tell you that was after lots of negotiations because uh, they were going to be stalling committees till the end of November. 
Well, there are already five confidence votes coming between now and the next few weeks. Um, by stalling that out, it, she just didn't want to bring these scandals back up. But fortunately, many of our key um, committees will be starting in the next couple of weeks. That include important committees like health and public safety, which need to be looked at. We need to look at what are some of the options for rapid testing? What should our border policies be? All of those important things. Um, and so we're able to get back to work. So it's really concerning because he, he really is dangling that carrot. But right now, uh, the Liberals tried to stifle Parliament once again by not allowing committee work to happen. But I can tell you that um, with the House leaders, specifically working with the NDP and Bloc, we were able to say committees must get back or there would be, be no signing off on meetings. So there was lots of things that were happening. We are de- now in a hybrid parliament, which is the first, you know, we have allowed that to happen until de- uh, the end of December. Those are some t- things that we're working on. But I think they've got to be held accountable right now. And, and right now, um, they're putting out this stuff to kind of say, this is what we'd offer if we'd be having a if we'd be having an election, and this is our platform. That's what they're running on right now, and and I think they just want to see how far they can push everybody. And how would a sna- a faster snap election benefit the prime minister? Why why is he so anxious to call an election now? I think the name is we. I think it comes down to that. I think it comes down to the fact that we got so many redacted documents. Uh, today there was a, a privilege motion that was put on the floor because as we are hearing. There were supposed to be redactions done by the law clerk. They were done actually by the government themselves before they sent these off. And so when they were going to be passing these documents onto committee, they had to say back to the government, I'm sorry, but you've redacted these documents. We were supposed to take out the privacy and security information, but you've redacted the documents. And uh, so they couldn't get that. So I look at it by making sure that the committees cannot work and, and looking at what some of these things that they were doing, filtering money to friends and families, I think these are concerns that they do not want brought up. So I look at what they were doing in the House leadership, and I look what they are doing here in Parliament with the three thrones, three throne speeches. Um, they're setting themselves up for trying to, to lead this country in, in a, as a majority and going for another election. But we have to work so we can actually do what Canadians need. And so that's why I think the committee work is so important. So looking at um, the health programs, looking at all of these different things that we should be really focusing on. The Prime Minister says he's uh, got our backs, he's looking after us and handing out lots and lots of money. So how would the Conservatives, how do you counter that? Do you say, well, I'm not going to hand out that money because you'll never win an election taking money away, will you? Well, Scott, the bottom line is what money? We have not seen a framework on what this, these programs or these policies are going to cost. He has not attached anything to this. So right now it's a big balloon statement. And what we watched in the last few weeks, we've watched a lot of those balloons being thrown out by this government saying, will the government like this? And they'll bite on or or they're throwing all of these things out to see how Canadians are reacting. And that's what I've seen. And this is exactly what the speech from the throne is. How are Canadians reacting to the speech from the throne? Are they going to sit there and say, we need these programs, we need it, and and all of those? They're not. Ta- they're wanting us to clickbait on austerity. Of course, yeah. we should be fiscally responsible. We should be spending our mo- our money wisely, and that is not throwing millions of dollars to our friends and families. That is spending on programs and making sure workers are employed and making sure that business businesses can succeed during this pandemic. Karen Vecchio has been with us, MP for Elgin, Middlesex, London, Deputy House Leader for the Official Opposition. Karen, thank you for the time uh, and be well. Thank you so much and best wishes to you. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contribu- uh, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. My pleasure. Hope you're well, too, Scott. So why prorogue government if you don't want an election? <laughs> Good question. That's a $64,000 question or whatever the equivalent is today. Um, I don't know, because typically that is, there's only two reasons to prorogue parliament. One is to save your political hide, and the other is to call an election. And although <clears throat> certainly Justin Trudeau, the current prime minister, has a minority government, it certainly appeared from most people's points that it was related, A, to call an election, and B, to sort of put a bit of a clamp down on the We Charity scandal, which had actually dropped their popularity numbers. Uh, that's one point I would uh, dispute with you a little bit, Scott. Their numbers have actually dropped in recent months, and the reason is that the the impact that occurred initially during COVID-19, where Justin Trudeau saw his numbers, personal popularity numbers anyways, go between 55 to 64 percent when he was handing out money, a lot of that gain has been negated by the We Charity scandal to the point that most polling companies, this includes Nanos and others that I can sort of think of off the top of my head, are showing that if an election were held today, the Liberals and the Conservatives are sort of sitting right now a kind of a margin of error, with the Liberals maybe leading in the popular vote by about 2 to 3% and nothing more than that. I think that also may partially explain some of the hesitation, why they're not really pushing forward heavily with an election. I think that may have been certainly something he was thinking in the first place and that a lot of Liberal advisors were considering at that point. But interestingly, even just the last month, when Parliament was prorogued in August and they reconvened on September 23rd, a fair number of things actually changed with the major polling companies. So you wonder if maybe they either pulled the plug at the wrong time or considered an option that, quite frankly, they shouldn't have thought of in the first place. So are Canadians buying into this? Uh, Do they care? Or as long as the government keeps handing out money, they're fine? Well, uh, based on the fact that Trudeau and the Liberals, they're both their polling numbers have gone down. I think that people obviously still want to, as you say, be, you know, be doled out money. But I think they also realize that the government handing out the money or doling out the money as it, as it goes is obviously just not running or operating on a very effective basis. And it's not surprising. I mean, we don't have to go through the laundry list, but this is a prime minister, that being Justin Trudeau, who has gone to the ethics commissioner three times in five years and seems to be ethically challenged and seems to lack a moral code. And liberals can go out and say how wonderful he is all they want and can say how heartwarming he is, how you know sympathetic he is, and all this utter nonsense about sunny days, borrowing lines from Sir Wilfrid Laurier and others, and using them in a context which is not accurate. Um, he has been ineffective. He has been a very poor prime minister overall, and he's really a mediocrity. You really should think about it. And I, I know you might say, well, what else would a guy who wrote speeches for Stephen Harper say? I've never called Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin mediocrities. I never even called his his late father, Pierre Trudeau, a mediocrity, even though I completely disagreed with most of his policies, and if I had been alive at that point, would never have voted for the Liberal Party. Um, I really do see this with Justin Trudeau, and I think, think more Canadians are at least coming to the realization that maybe not looking at it as strenuously as I am, they're realizing that the person who's been in charge since 2015 doesn't seem to be very much in control of the situation. That it seems to be other prominent liberals, including Finance Minister Chris Christia Freeland, 
who really seem to be running the show by and large, or at least, if nothing else, give this government intellectual heft, if you believe it has any intellectual heft. So I think that what's happening is, yes, people are happy that money is being doled out. Yes, they would like it to continue, although, as we know, CERB is going to be discontinued in late September and then pushed into EI, based at least on what was discussed during the throne speech yesterday. Um, I think that I think a lot of Canadians are starting to come to the realization that they may not love the other options, so to speak, but that the current government and the current prime minister aren't what they made out, what they're made out to be. Uh, so six weeks, government was uh, shut down, or parliament was shut down. Uh, now we're hearing, uh, and initially this was pushed onto the provinces, but now it's the prime minister that's getting uh, the attention for the lack of testing, the lack of approving high, uh, faster testing, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, obviously, we're in a lot different state now than we were uh, just after prorogation. Sure. Uh, and now it's been shut down for for six weeks, and now we find ourselves in, in an issue where we don't have enough testing. So uh, would this have mattered? Should government have been in operation uh, during those six weeks? Would, would we be in a different place right now if government was actually working as opposed to being prorogued and ready for an election? Well, if you accept the critique that Stephen Harper shouldn't have prorogued Parliament in 2008 and that my old friend boss was wrong in what he chose to do to basically ensure that he wasn't brought down at that time or that there wasn't, as I and others called it, a political coup d'etat that was occurring at that point. If that's the point there, the government should have operated through that. And remember, the Liberal Party and the and Liberals still to this day complain about that. Well, then, in fairness, Justin Trudeau should not have prorogued Parliament either because he wanted to stop the Wee Charity scandal from bleeding him at the polls or because he had these grand visions of holding an, an early election. Either way, I think that proroguing Parliament, no matter who does it and no matter the reason behind it, it causes a bit of a break in the system. It Obviously, you know, the daily routine or at least the day-to-day -day routine that, Paul, that Canadian politics operates under was interrupted for a period of time. As you said, it was roughly about six weeks, and that's a long period of time, especially now when we're dealing with a global pandemic pandemic or COVID-19. Yes, the government, or at least the federal government, should have been operating all during this time. In terms of testing and other options, you know, testing has basically been controlled for the most part by the provincial governments. And obviously there have been some good points, some bad points, but no matter who it is, whether it be Ontario or beyond, we're all doing the best we can. And all the provincial governments, no matter their political stripe, are trying their best. It's imperfect, but then again, there was no perfect solution. If the federal government wishes to get involved or more heavily involved, and that's what the throne speech seemed to allude to, that's fine, but then they also must share in some of the blame if things don't prove and COVID testing results don't come out in a much faster fashion than we've seen lately. So, yes, if they want to be involved in that, that's great. But shutting down the government and coming back and saying they want to be involved, they certainly can be, at least Ottawa can be, but they should have been operating all during this time because maybe if they really wanted to be involved in the process, they could have helped during those six weeks that they were off. So how does opposition react to all of this? I mean, as I said in my commentary, I think no one wants an election any more than, than the prime minister does. He just doesn't want to be the bad guy who calls it. So sure. how, do, how does opposition uh, not get caught in that trap? And how, uh, can, us, can opposition sell austerity now? 
Well, the opposition doesn't feel they are getting caught in the trap. I think they're more, except for one opposition party, which I'll mention in a second, I think most of them are at least committed or ready to go ahead. The Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois both seem to be. The Conservatives have already spoken out against the throne speech. Yes, I know most people will say that was obvious, but they were quick off the mark, and at least we understand where they're going to be. With respect to the Bloc Québécois, as, as you may remember, and I think you and I talked about it, Scott, but I've certainly spoken about it with others, and you've probably mentioned it yourself. Yves-François Blanchet, the BQ leader, said last month that he had basically lost the confidence in a number of leading liberals, that being Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, then-Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who has since left, and Katie Telford, who is the Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister. Um, and he had said at the time that if all three of them didn't resign or leave, he was going to strongly consider a vote of no confidence. At that time, it would have been for October, but because of proroguing, it'll obviously be a bit earlier. Um, as we know, the only person who's left in that list is Bill Morneau. The prime minister is still there. His chief of staff is still there. So one has to assume that if Mr. Blanchet is a man of his word, and we'll see if, that, if that's the case, but it looks like it, the BQ will also oppose it. The Liberals need one of two progressive parties to keep themselves alive. That being the Bloc Québécois, which at least theoretically is out of the picture. And then it's left up to the NDP if they want to continue to be a kingmaker. But the risk for that, and I actually just wrote in one of my columns for Looney Politics, which I write every couple of weeks, I made the point that no matter what they do, they're going to actually get the biggest brunt of criticism for their actions. Because if the NDP prop up the Liberals and keep them alive, which they might be tempted to do because a lot of the policies in the throne speech mesh with their own, the risk they take is that if there's another ethics violation or challenge that just intrude on the Liberals' face, well, guess who's going to be blamed for it? The NDP for keeping this government alive. Hmm. On the flip side, if they help the other opposition parties bring the government down, and I think we can certainly say that it seems like almost everybody except probably the Greens, who only have three MPs, and maybe one of the two independents, we'll see. I don't know if Jody Wilson-Raybould is going to vote with the government on this. But either way, um, the NDP, if they actually decide to bring them down, they'll also get part of the blame as well, and probably a heftier mm. sum, because all the other opposition parties have clearly stated, either currently or in the past, what they plan to do. The NDP, as you know, is basically dangling two carrots right now in front of the Liberal government and says that if you don't meet those demands, then we're actually going to go. One of which, which you know is, is extra pay during the time people are off for COVID or health reasons, that's actually part of provincial jurisdiction. It's not even a federal component. So I don't even know how Justin Trudeau could even agree to something like that because it doesn't follow under the Constitution that he can mandate it. So it'll be interesting to see, but... Either way, the NDP might think that they're going to get around this or just sort of say, well, look, our, you know, we had to do what was best for the country one way or the other. Interestingly enough, they may get the worst brunt of it rather than the liberals who engineered this throne speech, engineered the proroguing of parliament, and maybe at one point wanted to bring themselves down.
Do Canadians believe the Prime Minister does not want an election? Do they believe that, especially... You know, like, I'm watching the throne speech yesterday, Michael, and I understand the history, I understand the pomp and circumstance, I understand the tradition, uh, and obviously understand that we have to have a scaled-down version of all of that because of COVID-19. However, I'm watching that yesterday, and I'm watching all of these elitists sitting there, you know, their big velvet chairs and stuff, and I'm thinking, how can this possibly be resonating with Canadians right now whose stomachs are in knots because they don't know where a pandemic is going and these guys are all playing king and queen yeah look i mean i can't speak for close to 38 million people who live in this country some of which are not even entitled to vote so i don't know what canadians are feeling right now i haven't seen any poll data which shows it other than some early poll data which show you know even a month or two ago that canadians weren't wildly keen on going to the going to the ballot, you know, ballot box or going to vote because... But do Canadians understand, but do Canadians understand the only reason we're talking about this is because the Prime Minister wants one? No, no, I don't. I think some do, certainly. But unfortunately, look, a lot of people and a lot of people in this country are not politically astute. They basically look at issues and they don't completely understand all the machinations and gyrations that... I certainly do, having worked in politics for more than half my life, that you certainly do because you cover this, and that a lot of people in our industry or in our little world, so to speak, understand. You and I live and breathe this, Scott. We really do. Most Canadians don't. Most Canadians worry about other issues. Who knows? Maybe they're right to do this. But unfortunately, you know, I, I speak only for myself. I am what I am, and I know what I'm interested in. But I don't think that a lot of Canadians are wildly keen on going to the ballot box, but I don't know if they necessarily know all the reasons as to why Justin Trudeau tried to engineer his own defeat, at least at one point, or at least seems pretty clear he did. I think the same way, and I heard you just a little bit mention it, the same way that this calling for 30 minutes of time on television, where he really said nothing, nothing at all. Yeah, he talked about COVID-19, but we're aware of a lot of that. Yes, he mentioned that we're in a second wave, but guess what? That's been discussed quite readily in the national and international press. And aside from a few provinces that fortunately had things under control, a lot of the bigger provinces, Ontario, Quebec, throughout the West, we all had been in a second wave of some sort for a little while now. So he didn't say anything profound or anything original to take up national time on TV, which is usually reserved for things such as discussions of an act of war, uh, a major issue like the FLQ crisis that his late father brought, you know, asked for national time or asked for a national broadcast on, which makes sense. This was basically Justin Trudeau just literally asking for 30 minutes, being on for, I forget exactly, about 20 plus, and really not saying much of anything that added on top of what had been discussed in the throne speech. So, you know, you look at all of that, maybe Canadians don't want to go to the polls, but you would certainly think at least some of them or some of the people sitting on the fence are starting to wonder that maybe there is a lot more to it, especially if they haven't been, you know, paying attention and watching everything that's occurred to date from A to Z.
So here we are uh, on September 24th. Uh, we're sitting in limbo. The prime minister has brought us right to the brink of an election, throwing it over to the opposition to either say yay or nay, and, and hopefully he'll get an election called, and, and he hopefully, uh, I'm sure, in his mind, will win his majority. Sure. Uh, that being said, uh, what about Aaron O'Toole in all of this? Because, again, uh, you know, he, the, the, when he was first elected leader of the Conservatives, that was in the middle of the night. Uh, then he was joking the other day when he did his response to the throne speech that he was doing it out in front of his house what will it be like once this guy gets uh, on the ground and running and i know you are a supporter of his and, and after listening to him i can see why uh what do you think it's going to be like once this guy gets uh, on the ground and running yeah well i mean i publicly endorsed him i didn't work for him obviously i just want to clear that point i had nothing to do with the campaign whatsoever but no i endorsed him as I have endorsed other candidates in the past, you know, as a columnist, just people that I agree with or think are best for the party. Um, I would put it this way, though. Aaron O'Toole has now had a few weeks in power. You know, what happened that night and the fact that everything was badly delayed was unfortunate, but we're past that. The fact that he had to speak in front of his house was unfortunate, but he's past it. The fact that his family and he have been struggling with COVID-19 for a little bit Mr. O'Toole was actually, you know, tested negative for, um, I'm sorry, tested positive for COVID-19 just recently. And his wife, actually, I think was just announced a few days ago, also has tested positive. Again, not surprising because they're in close quarters, but it's something that obviously they have to deal with. And it's something that he and all other political leaders will have to deal with if there's an early election call. However, he's assembled a very good team, a lot of very intelligent, competent people who have an enormous amount of political experience and understand not only the machinations of the government, but how to run an election and how to run it effectively and how to win an election. Because there's lots of people there who are linked to successful squads from, well, from Stephen Harper, obviously. Uh, Provincially, there's some elements of Mike Harris sitting through there. And there are people who work through the West, through some of the, you know, some of the Alberta and B.C. premiers, who under, you know, again, some of them going back quite a piece away, but whether, you know, they worked for Ralph Klein, there's still, believe it or not, a few of them hovering around, or Christy Clark in B.C. When you put it all together in the conservative tent, there's lots of experienced people there who are ready, willing, and able to go to an election. And Aaron O'Toole, yeah, it was a little rocky for the first day or two. Yes, he's had some struggles with his family. We only hope for the best, as we hope for the best for any leader who's been suffering with COVID-19, and that includes Mr. Blanchet of the Bloc Québécois. You know, this is not an ideological thing. It's whoever, you know, whatever it hits, whoever it hits, we have to hope that they recover as quickly as possible. But Aaron O'Toole is ready to run. I mean, he's ready to run today. And And the Conservative Party has already said they're going to oppose the speech. They are set. Yes, it's a new leader. Yes, it's a new direction. And yes, they recently introduced a new Conservative Party logo, but they're all set and they're ready to go. So where do you think this is going? Like I said, we're on the brink of an election now, thanks to prorogation. What's your prediction? Where do you see this going short term? <clears throat> well, you know, it's, it's hard to say. It could be extremely close. Um, it really comes down to whether the NDP, again, it's really up to Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, whether they want to keep a government afloat, that being the liberals, who have been ethically and morally challenged for quite a while now, because they agree with some of the policies they've, they've brought in, because this is by far, and, and I'm, I'm, it's not even close, Scott, this is the most left-wing political agenda ever put forward by any federal government before, 
And, of course, the scary thing is we barely know any of the financial details. God knows how much this is going to cost to do all this. You know, national daycare, national pharmacare, green agenda, and all the spending that they're going to have to do to not only shift CERB to the EI and possibly pay the amount through there, but, you know, the construction of a million jobs. No federal government can do that. That is almost impossible. I mean, you obviously want to work towards lofty goals. I get that. But to then put it all through the green agenda and claims that they're, you know, they'll get tax credits and various other things. Well, other businesses well, that won't necessarily be associated with Justin Trudeau's pet projects may actually suffer for it. I, I just don't understand the logic. But when you put it all together and all the costs and all the things that he wants to do and all that he's proposed, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. The NDP will definitely be tempted to do it. But again, as I said, if the Liberals become an albatross and drag them down the water, the NDP only have 24 members in their caucus, and they could lose a t more than half of them if they're not careful based on the decision they make. All the other political parties can suffer in certain ways, but at least their position is known. So it's going to be interesting to see. It wouldn't shock me if the NDP decided to back the Liberals in the end simply because they don't want to go through an election, the cost to taxpayers, and the risk that they could get demolished very badly. So it might happen, but it would be interesting if it doesn't, because even though it will be very difficult to run an election during a pandemic, we saw in a smaller fashion that New Brunswick did it provincially. B.C. is in the midst of one right now, so that we, it's, you know, there's proof it can be done. Federally, it'll be hard. But can it be done? Yes. Will it be fascinating? Yes. And it'll be interesting to see within probably a few days what all the parties decide to do with this throne speech. I know that if I were sitting there, I would obviously be a conservative and I would vote it down. But I wouldn't be shocked if the progressives also decided at the same time that maybe it's better to take a risk with the Canadian electorate than go ahead with a liberal government that, quite frankly, has not shown themselves to be effective politically or as financial managers. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, Premier Doug Ford just finished his daily news conference uh, an hour earlier this uh, today, rather, instead of 1 o'clock at uh, 12 o'clock. So it switched things around for us here just a little bit. But we want to play you some uh, highlights, some clips of the Premier talking about changes to testing protocol. Listen. We're investing over $1 billion in expanded testing and contact tracing. That's a billion dollars to support testing, and this investment will make a huge difference. But until we get Health Canada's approval for new rapid tests, rapid testing that other jurisdictions are currently using, the health experts are telling us that we need to be more strategic with testing. Starting today, they are asking people to only get a test if you have COVID-19 symptoms, have been exposed to a confirmed case, are a resident or work in a setting that has COVID outbreak, or a resident or work in an at-risk setting such as long-term care homes, shelter, health care. Folks, I want to reassure you, no one who needs a test will be turned away. There's a billion dollars on the table for testing. That's a thousand more staff supporting contact tracing, $30 million to fight outbreaks, and $70 million for the largest flu vaccine campaign in Canadian history.
All right, that's Premier Doug Ford talking about changes to protocol and testing. It's it's bizarre. I mean, at one time he was begging people to get tested because nobody was going, and then all of a sudden, once numbers started creeping up, blammo, uh, in the last uh, a couple of weeks, all of a sudden uh, lineups have grown, and uh, obviously the need to be nimble and to get all these tests uh, processed and results uh, given back. Of course, it, it's taxing the system. Now they're asking you if uh, you have been exposed or showing symptoms or need to have it for a situation situation in which uh, you're working or so on and so forth, then obviously, but uh, if you're not really showing any signs and have real no reason to get a test, uh, asking you to hold back on that. All right. uh, Also, on that note, as uh, obviously lineups and demand for testing has just shot up in the last uh, few days and such, the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, I guess more and more municipalities are moving to an online booking system so they can make sure that they get people through as effectively and as efficiently as possible. Again, in areas where there is no uh, you know, need for testing, I guess people were standing around and doing nothing. Now, obviously, they're trying to make more efficient use of the time, making sure everyone has an appointment so they can get you in and out and try to hopefully avoid those really long lineups, uh, especially as pharmacies uh, get into uh, testing, which is coming up uh, this Friday, I believe. Let's bring in Dr. Tammy Packer, Chief Departments of Family Medicine, Hamilton Health Sciences, uh, and this is also St. Joe's Healthcare. And in regard to online booking and how in Hamilton you actually get a test. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm okay. <laughs> so how, how are you feeling about where we are right now? It is a whirlwind and continues to change hourly, it feels, for most of us. Um, I, I think pieces are starting to come together, but we're going to have some rocky days ahead of us. So uh, at one time there was, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, not that many interested in testing. We remember during certain uh, hot spots where people were were avoiding testing. Now, I guess, as numbers creeped up and anxieties creeped up, uh, the demand for for testing is up. There's some new protocol. Uh, we're going back to those who uh, need a, a test specifically uh, to get one. Tell us about the change in protocol. So the changes uh, happened this morning. I have to confess I'm on call today and I'm seeing patients. So I saw the changes all of about 12 minutes ago, although there was some foreshadowing yesterday. So I think we all had a sense that this was coming. Um, the key changes are that, uh, according to our premier, effective immediately, we should only be testing and directing folks to testing centers who have overt COVID-19 symptoms. Um, those, as you said, who've been exposed to a confirmed case of the virus, so that's somebody who has been tested and the COVID test has been positive. And as a consequence of that, public health has traced the contacts and you as a contact have received notification from public health um, or through the COVID Alert app that you, in fact, need to go get tested. And as well, folks who are residents or work in a setting that has a defined outbreak where the local public health unit is involved. Uh, there's a smaller group um, testing as part of a targeted initiative directed by the Ministry of Health or Long-Term Care, and there's a few of those around, but, but the bigger group that we're really trying to focus on, as we would with any illness, is those who are really sick. Uh, what about those that, so obviously those that have symptoms, those that are, have been exposed or, or know of someone that has been uh, in a situation where they have been exposed, what about those who need tests, for example, to visit family in seniors' homes, something like that? Is that considered so, uh, essential? So that is, that is that last group of the right. targeted testing initiative defined by the ministry. 
So there is still room for that. There is still room for that. I think what we're we're slowly digesting the information. What there won't be room for are the the group of folks that I think we all either have been in this position or we know folks who have who get invited to a cottage and just want to make sure that their bubble's a clean bubble or perhaps have booked a a last-minute vacation to the Caribbean and want to be tested to board the plane. That's what we're no longer going to be able to provide. Okay, so those that have symptoms, those that have exposed, those that need to uh, need a test to function in some form uh, that is essential, how do we get tested in Hamilton now if someone out there wants a test and does fall into these categories? So we've just sort of upended our process as of about 7.30 this morning. Um, the assessment and testing program in Hamilton is a very collaborative venture. Um, supported by, as you mentioned, Hamilton Health Sciences, St. Joe's, Hamilton Public Health, Good Shepherd Services, our regional paramedic services, our family health teams, and our Hamilton family docs. So it's, it's quite an umbrella of individuals who've been working together since March trying to make this all happen. Uh, we had been working primarily as a phone booking system, and we flipped this morning with an emphasis on online booking, and that work's been supported by St. Joe's. And I have to add, shout out to the team, that's all been accomplished in the last four and a half nights and days. Um, So folks go online, um, you go to www.hamiltoncovidtest.ca and it takes you through some questions and an online booking form and you receive an email confirming your location and time. Uh, Any idea how long it would take to get a test once uh, an appointment is booked? And I'm sure this is fluid as well. It is totally fluid, and it's probably, you know, this is what we're, you mentioned everybody's anxious. We're anxious and apprehensive as well. Um, We know that uh, when we opened the lines around 7.30 this morning, the online booking, until about half an hour ago, 900 folks booked in that four-hour period. Uh, So we know that the system works, and we know that the demand is hot, and some of that demand was before the premier's release. Uh, when we did the cutover late last night, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of booking available for asymptomatic folks. And remember that we're now going to be having to address on a go-forward basis what, how we adjust our booking templates. So if you are sick and really need a test, we did have spaces available within the same day next day. And that was when we opened this morning. I can't speak to where those spots are. But for those who truly need testing, we should be able to accommodate by the end of the weekend. Uh, Many are asking why now an appointment when before you could just drive up and wait in line. Yeah, I think that's a really good and important question. Um, Driving and waiting in a line when the lines are now two to three, you know, two thirds, three quarters of our volume. If I use the St. Joe's East End site as an example, that site when we first opened in March, I worked the first night and we thought we were heroes because I think we saw about 120 people. Hmm. Tuesday night, they saw 450. Wow. And that's in the space of six hours and, and we're really stretched on staff everywhere. If You see 450 and 300 of those folks are walk-ins. For the folks that are working, every time they look up, they just see a throng of people. People that are close to one another, it's hard to maintain physical distancing. People, some of whom may be contagious. People who have frailty and may not do well standing in a line. So it's really a matter of mayhem. And we felt that we could manage efficiently um, and actually look after more people if we could go to an organized booking system. 
So that's why. It's just it's just better and easier, more efficient to manage large groups of people the way you've had to in the last few days. Totally, and we can structure in terms of you know at the back end of this, we can look right. at who comes when and and put high priority groups at a specific time. Um, and for your staff, if you're running an operation, it's really really hard to ask people to come to work day in and day out, and and mm-hmm. particularly at night, not knowing what they're going to see or when they're going to finish. So what advice do you have uh, for the public, Tammy, that's obviously feeling the anxiety and, and now uh, obviously a, a restructure in the testing? Um, what advice do you have for, for those listening in? Well, I was thinking about this. I think that, you know, the advice that we struggle with is really that COVID has, has really forced us to look at things in a different sort of way. It's not about the individual. It's about this community. It's about Hamilton. It's about yourself and your neighbor. So part of when you're thinking about, gee, I might want a test or perhaps I could use a test, we need to choose wisely right now about who's getting those tests. And we go back to those basic premises of if there's somebody out there that is probably sicker than you and needs it more because they're frail or because they're on chemotherapy or because they're elderly, then we need to make room for them right now. And we need to think about one another as trite as that sounds. We need to keep each other safe because that's the only way we can function as a community. Um, and I guess the other thing that I would think about are the basic tenets that we hear from our medical office of our officer of health. We need to wear a mask. We need to stay physically distant. We need to wash our hands. If we're thinking about, do you think I might need a test? I'm just thinking maybe it might be a good idea. I think we can all pretty much come to the conclusion that you probably shouldn't be getting a test right now. Obviously, you're trying to uh, test as many people in, in, in the shortest period of time, trying to come up with the most efficient system in which to do so. Art is testing for those that don't need it really just a false sense of security? Because in the end, we're using these resources that don't really need to be need, uh, used on these people where they could be used more effectively on those that are in those hot spots or key areas. On the other hand, you could go in and line up for an hour or two and get your test and then come out and, you know, within a couple of hours in some way have made contact with someone and then be positive. So, again, mm. just because just because you're testing negative doesn't mean, well, who I'm free now, does it? You totally nailed it. All that it means is at that particular moment, you didn't have enough viral RNA within your system to be detected. And, that's and you could theoretically walk out of the... Super dangerous. You could theoretically walk out of the building and into the parking lot and get it there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and we know. So that that sort of right that sort of right there is a good reason not to take up testing space for someone that perhaps may need it more. Absolutely. Totally. So I think you've read it completely accurately, and I think you've been helpful in terms of getting the message out. I hope we can do as well as you have. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Tammy Par- or Packer rather, has been with us. Dr. Tammy Packer, Chief Department of uh, Family Medicine, Hamilton Health Sciences, and St. Joseph's Healthcare. Uh, HamiltonCovidTest.ca, HamiltonCovidTest.ca. That's the website you go to in order to book an appointment. And again, those that have been exposed or showing symptoms uh, or obviously need it in some way of work or, or seeing a loved one, uh, that's the priority right now. Tammy, thank you so much for the time and insight. Good work. Keep it all up and uh, pass on to all your cohorts there that uh, we appreciate all the hard work everyone's doing. Thank you very much. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.